Well, I've got some exciting news. What's up, man? <laughs> Tell me the exciting news. <laughs> We're doing another show together. We are. And yes. Like Maverick yeah. and Goose, back together. <laughs> <laughs> and it's still on farming because, of course, what the world needs is another farming podcast. But this one, this one is going to be different. Um, we're talking about uh, we're talking about nature and farming for the Nature Friendly Farming Network. It is, and I'm excited because it gives us an opportunity to perhaps get out the farming bubble a bit. I think I think a lot of non-farmers will listen to this, which um, I'm very excited about, and hopefully listen to um, or hear some of the, uh, the important work that farmers are doing with nature on their farms. Yeah, no, absolutely, and uh, I don't know about you, but certainly here, I mean, we are. We're looking to the future and um, trying to sort of gauge the kind of system that we're going to be doing um, both through the transition and beyond. Um, and even though we've been involved in HLS and ELS and, and, and original stewardship stretching right way back as well, um, I, think, I think I still need to go, want to go further. And so I'm actually really looking forward to out of this podcast of actually looking and meeting loads of farmers, um, loads of nature-friendly farming farmers uh, who are doing really interesting things. Mm. Well, me too. I've just joined the organisation about a month or so ago. Um, yeah, I know you're a, lo- you're a long-standing member, so I'm uh, very excited to learn more. Brilliant. Shall, shall I do the actual introduction that, that you've wrote now? <laughs> yeah, I th- uh, you perhaps do that then, and then I'll, yeah, if you do that, and then I can uh, I can uh, I can chop it all in afterwards, Ben. <laughs> Hello, and a very warm welcome to the very first Nature Friendly Farming Network podcast. My name is Ben Eagle, a farmer and podcaster from Essex. Over the next several weeks, we're going to be to, we're going to be talking to various farmers who have come together to champion a way of farming which is sustainable and good for nature. They come from a range of backgrounds, big and small, organic and conventional. But the one thing that they have in common is a passion for ensuring our countryside is productive, as well as bursting with wildlife. My name's Will Evans, also a farmer and podcaster from North Wales. Now, who better to kick off this series with than the chair of the Nature Friendly Farming Network Steering Group for England, Chris Clark. Chris, welcome to the show. And what does it feel like to be our very first guest? Because no pressure, obviously, but you'll need to set the standard for all future episodes by being entertaining, informative and, of course, extremely interesting. Uh, about no pressure exactly but it's daunting and not my preferred habitat <laughs> well, welcome to the show thanks so much thanks so much for kicking yourself and being a good sport um can you possibly start by telling us a bit about your background um were you born into a fa- farming family for example uh, i absolutely wasn't and neither was my wife and so i was born in what was then tanganyika and was lucky enough to live there until I was eight or nine. And then my parents moved to Indonesia uh, and I was at boarding school in the UK and um, uh, ended up going to agricultural college eventually. So not born into um, a farming family. Okay. What did, you, what did your parents do? So my father was uh, a water engineer and eventually became a specialist in growing rice in the Far East. And so, so I mean, obviously you, you grew up... Um abroad so to speak this for you there and you're at boarding school what, what did you have any did you have any farming influences at all growing up uh, uh absolutely zero farming influences um my father uh, recognized that my academic ability or my ability to concentrate on academia was somewhat <laughs> limited, and for some reason suggested agriculture <laughs> 
<laughs> what he actually what, what what actually happened was i've always enjoyed being outside always enjoyed um nature yeah we went on safari in east africa until i was eight and not not this sort of silver service white coated safari proper stuff um with proper campfires and walking through um the bush and so you know, I was brought up with that, and uh, I can still remember my brother and I going for a pee together and peeing on the snake, which then just slithered away between our legs. <laughs> <laughs> wow, wow. Okay, so, so you were always interested in nature and the environment around you from a very young age? Indeed, I, it's no longer in existence, but I joined at a very young age the YOC, the Young Orthologist Club. Uh, when when we were in in the UK back in the UK, um, and so was a member of that for a long long time. It, it, was, it was the RSPB uh, Young Birders Club. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, at that time when you uh, eventually went to agricultural college in the UK, um, so height of the sort of late twentieth century bag and bottle production agricultural period, was there any talk of the environment on farms at all? No. Um, there wasn't any talk of the environment on farms, and I and I also now realise there wasn't any proper talk about how farm business should operate on mm. farm land. In in conjunction with the environment, or just farm business at all? Farm business at all, because as maybe we'll get onto, there is an inextricable link between the profitability and viability of farm businesses, and the uh, successful management of nature, habitat, environment, etc. Mm. Yeah, I mean that, that, that's an absolutely critical theme, I think, for this podcast generally. Um, and I'm hoping we're, we're going to explore that um, not just with you, um, but, but but with a lot of other farmers coming coming through. Um, so when when you were uh, beginning to think along those lines and, and farm in that way, and others saw you doing that. Did you face scepticism? Um, did you face, dare I say, criticism from anyone? So it took us, uh, I got married in 1980, and we got married in 1980, and we had set ourselves the objective, and this is, for me, critical. We set ourselves the objective of owning, of owning our own farm by the time I was 50. So we had to okay. find actually to do that. We achieved that when I was 49 years and six months old. So <laughs> and of course, yeah, I always question myself now. Is if I'd said forty, would I? Would I? <laughs> anyway, so going back to so going back to your question, I had to go through um, a series of um, hurdles. Get over a series of hurdles, really. Uh, I, so when I left college, I was milking in Pembrokeshire, uh, assistant to farmer. Then I became a farm manager in Buckinghamshire. Then uh, we became tenants on a farm in Surrey, and that was uh, the early 1980s. But what we found is that we could go into outdoor pigs, start to get our farm business in on our own right, and um, begin to uh, have our own uh, farming business that allowed us to to go to the, the next level. But of course, in those days, this is the 80s, Margaret Thatcher in power, interest rates 15 15 and a half percent new farming startup as a, as a tenant my uh my potential the interest rate was three and a half percent so we were paying 18 19 percent interest in those days wow. of our, yeah, yeah. 
farm tenancy, uh, all based around out, outdoor pigs. But the outdoor pigs worked for us because there was a monthly income. There was a cash flow coming in rather than having to wait. But it was also at the same time, it was the BSE, bovine spongiform encephalopathy. And so we were the first farmers, we believe, to A, have our pigs free range from birth to slaughter. And, and secondly, we took all the growth promoters and the meat and bone meal out of the, out of the pig's diets at that time. And we then learned that the, the, uh, the marketing offer that we could give to the 60 butcher shops and the Harrods and the Selfridges and Fortnum's that we started dealing with, that marketing offer gave us something that nobody else had. When you were doing that, were you um, seen as a bit of a, a maverick? Were, were people sort of looking at you over the hedge and saying, what on earth is he doing over there? Uh, completely. It wasn't the, the farming community that caused us the most problems. It was the, the bigger agricultural companies. Uh, we were buying our pig feed through BOC and Paul's, mm-hmm. and they did not want to take out these growth promoters um, or, the, uh, or the meat and bone mill. And they, they charged us a lot of money for, for doing that. Mm-hmm. But marketing offer that we were able to give, we were, that allowed us to increase our price to cope with all that. Mm. Uh, when um, people were sort of criticising or, or, or questioning your methods, did that drive you on to prove them wrong? Or, or did you just not listen and not care about what others said or thought? I've always uh, listened to what other people have to say, but the driving force for me is profitability and viability. Margin mm-hmm. is what has allowed my wife and I to buy our own farm and to move onwards. And, mm-hmm. uh, we, we, we're not driven by yield, we're driven by margin. Mm. I always find it strange that, that people don't think along those lines, but, <laughs> but clearly it's, um, yeah. Uh, let's uh, let's go a bit in on uh, on a local scale. Um, so, I mean, you're in the process of a pretty big move at the moment, um, which doubtless we'll talk about a bit later in the show. But can you tell us a bit about your farm um, in Yorkshire um, and how it's changed over the years? We bought uh, in 2005 a 400 uh, acre Yorkshire Dales hill farm. It, it went from uh, 1,200 feet where the farmhouse was up to nearly 2,000 at the top of the moss uh, and when we arrived there the farm was ranched. Now slightly nuanced the difference between ranching and, and, and rewilding perhaps but it was ranched and it was ranched um, in a way that we were finding tape um, in the fields so not very well looked after. Um, and it was driven by a large number of sheep. Now, I set out, I was taught at agricultural college that the more you drive production, the more money you make. Uh, that actually isn't the, the case. So gradually, over a period of time, we took back control of, of the farm and the stocking rate, and we gradually reduced the numbers of stock. And lo and behold, as we did that, our inputs went down and our margins went up. Um, so everything that I'd been taught was thrown into a spin about driving production. And so the farm changed from uh, a significant sort of four or 500 sheep of various sorts at one time down to 
um, 20, 25 cattle and um, 100 to 200 sheep of various sorts. So we reduced the stocking rate, increased our margins, and lo and behold, also the biodiversity, the habitats, the environment benefited, benefited as well. Mm. Um, and what about diversifications, Chris? You've, you've done that very successfully there too, haven't you? So we bought the farm for several reasons, one of which was that the farm house and the building were a blank canvas. They hadn't really been touched in any way. So that allowed us to um, change or, or develop the old farm buyers where the cattle were tied by the neck uh, in the old days for seven months of the year. Uh, and we turned those into self-catering properties. Uh, so that was the one thing uh, we did. We also did B&B for a while, but that's really hard work. <laughs> um, uh, not that I did it, so you have to understand that. that was <laughs> delegate that. <laughs> well, uh, uh, it, my wife would probably say I advocated it rather than delegated it. <laughs> um, Everyone needs their role on the firm. <laughs> in, indeed. And um, we also then started adding value. Uh, we kept... The cattle for three or four years, um, the, the, the finishing cattle for, for three or four years, and then added value by turning them in, in, into ready meals on a really, really small scale. And we did the same. We did the same with the sheep. And our market was the B and Bs, the self catering, uh, the family, and and, and 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 local people. But we could turn um, a uh, a native breed, which would affect would effectively. Uh, generate 800 to 1,000 quid from the local market into a product rather than a commodity that generated between four and a half and 5,200 quid for a beaver. So 800 portions, 650 a portion, etc. And, and you, you can do, do, do the maths yourself. The marketing offer that we put forward to people who wanted to buy it and eat it was all surrounded by the native breeds, by the habitat, by what we were doing, there was a, a feel good about buying and eating uh, our product. And there are three T's, taste, texture, tenderness. And those three T's um, really come out, in my view, in native breed animals that have been allowed to make decisions for themselves, to grow slowly, but to eat what they want to eat when they want to eat it. Chris, can you tell us about some of the conservation work that you've done on the farm? Um, because I assume over the years that you've been involved in various agri-environment schemes. Yeah. Uh, when we arrived at Nethergill in 2005, there were no entitlements. There was no BPS. And we bought the entitlements, got the, uh, the BPS up and running. And also, um, in 2010, we applied for HLS. And... We put, tried to get HLS over the whole farm, and we just about did that. Um, so that that worked really well. And as part of the HLS, we put in bird hides, uh, and we put in footpaths, and so on and so forth. And um, we then matched what we were trying to do and brought the two things together. And the conservation and the farm became, and the farm business became inextricably linked. On the subject of business and nature, then, what what... What benefits have you seen, Chris? I mean, both in terms of nature itself, how have you seen that improve, but also how has that helped the profitability of your business? We now see all sorts of things that we haven't seen before. Uh, in particular, 
red squirrels. Uh, wow. Yeah. Fantastic. Very jealous. Yeah. <laughs> that's partly because of what we're doing and, 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 and partly because we're feeding birds, of course. So they're coming down to the bird feeders and then we started feeding them hazelnuts and so on and so forth. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, red squirrels as part of that, we're seeing otters. Of course, we've got all the, we've, we've reintroduced hay meadows to the farm. And so you've got all the um, the eye bright and hay rattle and ribwork plantain and all these sorts of things coming back. And <clears throat> what we also realized that we have to have, make use of the asset, the biggest asset in our business is ourselves, then the landscape in which we live and work, um, and then what we do with that asset. So what that meant was that we were able to link, I keep on coming back to it, conservation and, um, and farming. And we end up with a portfolio of revenue streams, <clears throat> which went something like uh, farming income, sort of uh, livestock uh, sales, uh, ready meal sales. It also meant sales or revenue generated from self-catering and breakfast. It also meant uh, using that uh, landscape and the conservation that we were doing to sell our self-catering mm -hmm. and the demographic that we found using our self-catering that was changed hugely from when we started to what we ended up with. Um, and so, again, I just keep looking back to it, the link between this, this your asset, your conservation, your, your farming and your landscape and nature and environment all come together. What are some improvements that we can all make on our farms for nature? Because it, it doesn't, I think some people think you have to change your entire farming system and it's very complicated, but, but there are lots of quick and easy starting points, aren't there? Maybe what are, what are sort of three things that we can all do straight away? So I would think, in fact, I believe the premise of your question is wrong because if you accept what I say, which yeah. is that there is an inextricable link between business, farm business and nature, yes. then by default, by definition, you've got to get your business right. Because if you get mm -hmm. your business right, nature comes anyway. I see. Okay? So yeah. the first thing that you have to do is understand that nature is a shareholder, a stakeholder in your business. Mm -hmm. And currently, okay. it does not appear on your balance sheet. And yet, in my view, it should. If it is a a shareholder, if you accept that nature is a shareholder in your business, any other shareholder would expect a dividend. If I had lent money to you, I would expect a dividend from you as a shareholder in your business. We can't do that with nature. But because it's a shareholder, it's a liability, not an asset. And because it's an asset, your need to drive a return on total asset goes down. If it was an asset, you'd have to have more sales to, to allow you to justify that asset. Am I making any sense? You are. That's a really interesting mm. way of putting it, actually. A great analogy. So, yeah, I mean, that's, a, that, that's, a, that, that's the first time I've actually heard anyone put it in that yeah. way. Um, and that's it, it actually it, it, that, that brings, brings that whole concept to life um, without, dare I say it, um, the, the, the reams and reams of, of ecological economists out there um, who there is there is heaps and heaps of research out on this stuff but actually it's about getting that message across um, and that's that's a brilliant way of saying it 
Mm. But 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 you know it, it, what what we're talking about here with trees is not just about farming. It's about ecology and conservation as well, because their business, the, the NGOs' business models, don't work either. Mm-hmm. I mean, so you're a farm advisor as well, as we've seen in, in that response. Uh, what are some of the things that you found most personally rewarding when advising other farm, other farmers, and other businesses? Why, why do you provide that advisory service? Other than obviously, it is a, it is a business of yours as well. Uh, so by the end of this year, I will have analysed personally nearly 80 farms. Wow. I will have sat with 80 kitchen tables and discussed things. And what we found out, A, is that nature is a shareholder in every single farm business. And secondly, if nature is a shareholder, then the... What I was taught at Seal Hen to drive production, that, that um, standard theory of the firm, as you drive production, your variable costs increase until your margins increase, um, that standard theory of the firm does not work in farming. There are, in farming, the costs are non-linear. So the biggest thing that we do for farms, farm, farm businesses, is help them understand that there is a sweet spot once your naturally available grass or your naturally available fertility runs out, you start adding costs, fertilizer feed, um, vet and med, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, overwintering. Once you start adding costs to try and increase the amount of production, you go through, you've gone through the, the break-even point, you go to a break-back point back into the loss-making, which is only allowable or achievable because of the support mechanism. Is it all these numbers are before support? And mm. um, as we know, the EPS is going. So what we mm. do is a help farm businesses understand the hierarchy of decision making that goes on when you when you make decisions about what you do, uh, and b that their costs are non-linear, not 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 the variable costs are linear and are non-linear, not linear, and that there is a sweet spot. And we have worked with farms, farm businesses, and are, are working with farm businesses now that are beginning to move down this route. This is not mm. an easy thing for farm to do. It is counterintuitive. It is against the received wisdom. It is against what they've all been taught and been told by father and grandfather, uh, but not, I would imagine, by great-grandfather, who was farming probably pre- or during or slightly post-Second World War. They would have understood, may not have understood the, the economics. They would understand not operating with with uh, fertilizer feed etc 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 so mm. what we do is give farmers what we try and do is hopefully give farmers confidence to reduce stocking rates or to re- to reduce their yield by reducing that increase fantastic um how did your involvement with nature friendly farming network come about uh, well, I, I was invited to speak at the first Welsh real farming conference in Aberystwyth. I don't know what it was a year and a half ago, two, two years ago, and uh, I sort of I, I knew one or two people that were in it, and I, I would have to say that I was slightly sceptical. Anything with the word farming, um, <laughs> I, I sort of feel it, it, it's too conservative with a small C. 
and yes. not minded enough to change and move on. But I'd met a guy yeah, called yeah. Martin and I met Martin Lines at, uh, in Aberystwyth, uh, and I signed up then. Fantastic. I mean, you must be thrilled with how it's grown since then as well. I mean, it really has uh, taken off in terms of visibility and, and membership over the last few years, hasn't it? Uh, we're punching way above our weight. Um, and I can't remember what the total, the actual numbers are, but at least I think that's about 10,000 members of which coming up to 2,000 are farmers. Wow. Well, Brilliant. Fantastic. So as, as we mentioned earlier, you're in the process of a pretty big move from Yorkshire down to the southwest to Devon. Uh, tell us about your plans for down there and the kind of place that you're going to. So um, I am 64. I, I am anal about objectives. And <laughs> one of my objectives I failed to achieve, and that was to, to persuade our one of our daughters and their family and her family to come and stay with us and take over the okay. the, the, the farm in, in the Yorkshire Dale. So they wouldn't come to us, so we've gone to them in North Devon. And on <laughs> Friday, last Friday, we had an offer accepted on a small farm in North Devon. Fantastic. It has more farmable acres than we had in with 400 acres uh, in, in, in huh. Wales. And again, it is a blank canvas. There's all sorts of things um, that we can do. Farming rights and the, um, the conservation and the habitats, right? And we're looking to set up an intellectual partnership uh, between ourselves, other farmers and NGOs to see how we can start with this blank canvas and make things happen. That's really exciting. Whereabouts in North Devon is it, Chris? Uh, so it's uh, a little farm just south of Exmoor, um, uh, between Bampton and Dolberton. Uh, you're in, um, ah, I, yeah, I know Dolberton very well. You're in, you're in Robin Milton's part of the world. Um, uh, we are, and he doesn't know it, but I'm going to contact him. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, he's a great guy. <laughs> I love, I love that part of the world. Um, there's lots of talk now about nature-friendly farming or conservation ag or regenerative ag whatever that whatever people want to call it certainly more than ever has been before and it's not not only in farming circles you know you've seen it in the mainstream media as well with some very good articles um you must be encouraged by that i am hugely encouraged but wary at the same time mm. and i am wary because it doesn't matter whether you're doing payment by results or payment for outcomes or agroforestry or uh, whatever the, the terms are, no one, but no one talks about the viability of the farm business going down this route. Mm. And there's, there's this, what we should be doing is saying, my business is like this, this is where I am, this is where I need to, to, to get to. And by default, if you do run your farm business correct, you will achieve all these things anyway. So I'm really wary. Not, I'm, not, I'm not wary. I think it's a really good thing to be doing. But you've got to do it not just for conservation, but for commercial reasons. It has to be effective commercially. If BPS is going to go uh, and not be fully um, replaced by 2028, we have to have robust and resilient farm businesses um, that no one is really talking about. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, that 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 point of profitability um, and sustainable profitability of that, I think, is absolutely key, especially, as you say, in the light of a new UK ag policy, um, which we still we still live in in the breadth of uncertainty there. But the new UK ag policy is being drawn up with, as you said, direct payments being phased out and a new more environment focused scheme the elms will we're still yet to see and i know on this podcast we're going to be talking a lot about this um, but we will have a new more environment focused scheme which will be brought in um, are you confident that this will be successful uh, i'm not at all confident uh, i'm not confident at all that government is going to get the transition from where we are now to a public payment for public benefits approach in place, in time, to keep farmers viable, on viable. And the, the, the reason for that is that the way they value the public payments for public goods is based on nothing except a finger in the air. It's a negotiation, not based on anything. And so, and if it's based on anything at all, it is based on cover on, on a cover approach. And we're not going to get every single farm audited in time for evaluation to be um, calculated and even if we did there is no nationally or internationally approved method of valuing natural capital having done a cover-based approach so i'm really very concerned for farm businesses that uh, they're going to be left high and dry and chris uh, presumably at um Nature Friendly Farming Network, you you are feeding all that back to government. Are, are they taking that on board? Are they are they listening? So we're beginning to to feed this back in uh, into government because what I am saying is very very new, mm. very counterintuitive, and I repeat against all the received wisdom and everything that that we've taught we we've, we've been taught. It's difficult for the industry and and government to accept what we're saying. But it's 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 new, and it's bound to cause waves and, and aggravation and consternation and concern. Mm. Um, for farmers like me, um, who are perhaps well, who there are, are any farmers like you? Were. <laughs> I, sh- I should have said I'm asking for a friend here. Um, uh, for, for, for farmers who are perhaps feeling a little bit disillusioned with the ever increasing costs of inputs and machinery, and, and I know. A lot of people are. Ben and I speak to a lot of people with our work with, with different podcasts and an awful lot of farmers are feeling like this now more than they ever have been before, I think. And they're starting to question what they're doing, silly, really starting to wake up to the benefits of, of farming in a more friendly, nature-friendly way, but not maybe quite sure how to go about it. Um, what would you advise, apart, apart from pick up the phone to you, of course? So um, I think the first thing to do is to go away with your wife to a hotel for a weekend and sit in the bath together with a glass of wine each and discuss where you want to go i mean we've got four (laughs) children so that's better advice than you know (laughs) (laughs) because you need to get away from the um the immediacy of Mm. running a a a difficult farm business Mm. that's the first thing Second thing is that you accept that nature is a stakeholder in your business. And as a stakeholder, how would you treat a shareholder? And you treat it uh, 
delicately, de deferentially, if you like, you look after it, you stroke it in the right way. And that you uh, understand that you are given pro bono, gratis, free, a level of fertility um, and naturally available grass that allows you to drive your business in a different way to every other industry or every other business within other industries. And when you accept all those things and that there's a sweet spot that you should be trying to achieve by reducing fertilizer, sprays, feed, whatever it is, getting to that sweet spot is where you should be aiming for. But this is a philosophical uh, and a, a business approach problem to start with rather than actually doing it on the ground. You have to believe it because it is quite daunting. Mm. Yeah, we've been told to drive production and suddenly someone like me comes along and says, you, you don't need 10 tonne an acre or, or whatever it is, or, or two lambs per you. Actually, you'll make more money at 1.2 lambs per you or whatever the numbers are. So it's quite daunting. Um, and you know, the reason for the sitting in the bath with a couple of glasses of wine each is that you need support from around the family and because it is, it is, it is a, a tough job. The numbers that you mentioned earlier in terms of people and especially farmers getting involved in the Nature Friendly Farming Network is impressive. Um, but why should farmers who aren't already get involved with NFFM? Because there is a uh, community there which you wouldn't want to get necessarily into the bath with a glass of wine. But <laughs> it does give you that opportunity to bounce ideas around to say, I've got this problem. How do I get around it? What do you think? I need help. Um, you know, I, as I said, I sat around a lot of kitchen tables and quite often the Kleenex comes out because there are tears. Mm. Because I will tell people what I think, not what I think they want to hear, because that's the only way to do this. And it is hugely daunting what I'm mm. telling them. So having a community that allows you to um, be amongst friends or, and bounce ideas around them is just hugely, hugely helpful. Mm. I, might, I might be inviting you down here, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not getting in the bath with you. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I think that's a good place to leave things. Um, Chris, Chris, thank you so Speechless. much. <laughs> no one's ever said that to you on a podcast before, Ben. Um, Chris, uh, thanks so much for being our guinea pig today. Um, pleased to inform you that you have passed the test and set the standard wonderfully for future guests. Uh, keep up the good work and best of luck with a big move to the southwest. Hope it goes really well. Thank you very yeah, much. Absolutely. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, we hope that you've enjoyed the very first episode of the NWFN podcast. Please do spread the word on social media. And if you get a chance, rate and review the podcast on uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening. That is honestly a really big help. So the podcast comes out on the first and third Wednesdays of every month. So please let us know if there's anything you want to hear about in the nature-friendly farming world. And in the meantime, stay safe and we hope to see you all next time.